3: You're listening to Slice of Cheese with Jenny Linford on Food FM. Enhance your cheese board with Peter's Yard Sourdough Crackers this Christmas. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. To find out more about Food
2: FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Hello. Welcome
0: to A Slice of Cheese – the Food FM radio series that celebrates the world of cheese. I'm Jenny Linford, a food writer and cheese enthusiast, the author of Great British Cheeses. Cheese is a delicious and fascinating food, and we're setting out to explore this remarkable food and share the stories of the people who make, sell and love it. For this episode of A Slice of Cheese, I talk to key figures in the cheese world. Jason Hines, director of Neils Yard Dairy, speaks to me about Randolph Hodgson, the founder of Niels Yard Dairy and a seminal figure in the British cheese world. Renowned Somerset cheesemaker Jamie Montgomery tells me about his famous cheddar. And I speak to Roland Barthelemy, president of the Guilde Internationale des Fromagers. Finally, cheese writer Ned Palmer unpicks some cheese myths for us in his characteristic witty way.
2: Online, on Smart Speakers, and on Listen Again, this is Food FM.
3: Enhance your cheese board with Peter's Yard Sourdough Crackers this Christmas. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon, Petersyard.com and specialist food retailers.
0: This week on A Slice of Cheese, very happy to welcome back an old friend of the programme, Jason Hines, director of Neil's Yard Dairy. Good morning, Jason.
1: Good morning, Jenny.
0: Jason, this week we're talking about something I know you know a lot about, which is basically Neil's Yard Dairy. I wanted to talk about Neil's Yard Dairy because making this series of podcasts So many times that the name has come up, you know, mentioned by cheesemakers, both here and in countries around the world, like America. And it's really striking how influential Niels Dairy have been, you know, and the person who really sort of created Niels Dairy is the founder Randolph Hodgson. Randolph is now retired, so sadly we can't talk to him. But we've got the next best thing, I think, which is you, Jason. Thank you. I mean, Jason, tell you so you have, you know, you've been at Neil's Yard Dairy since the very early days too, haven't you?
1: I've been, yeah, I started in uh, February 92, so coming up for 31 years. Um, And the dairy has been in existence for 43. So, uh, you know, three quarters of that time I've been there and seen it evolve hugely along the way.
0: Fantastic. I mean, I remember I was a bookseller in the area, and I remember finding the first Neil's Yard area shop was a very small shop in a little courtyard off Covent Garden, which was very different in those days. It wasn't a centre of, of sort of restaurants and it wasn't a hubbub. It was this sort of a world that had been abandoned by Covent Garden Market, and it was little businesses setting up in the, you know, in these places that had been. Vacated, I suppose, when the market moved. So moving into the warehouses, moving into these little courtyards, and I was sort of fascinated by this tiny cheese shop. And one of the things that really strikes me is, you know, this small shop as I first saw it, and yet what a role it's played in in the world of British cheese. Tell me, a bit in a way to go back to that time, Jason. Yeah. Give me a sense of what it was like then. Well, I, I
1: yeah, still, I also started in that shop that you speak of, which was in Neil's Yard. You know, the earlier years before, you know, in the eighties, of course. It, it, You know, many people don't realize that, you know, the name that our business has is attributed to it because it actually was a dairy where milk was transformed into, you know, some cheese and dairy products in Neil's Yard, a geographical spot, which, as you quite rightly say, was a sort of collection of uh, old Victorian warehouses that were built originally to serve the, um, you know, the, the, uh, the wholesale market in Covent Garden just up the road you know and actually i think one of the things about the early days of neil's yard dairy is and and you know in a way it kind of set up a culture and a way of working together and collaborating um which i think we have to this day was the fact that we were surrounded by other like-minded businesses Mm -hmm. uh like-minded people who weren't necessarily all involved in the same exact work that we were involved in that's to say you know making dairy products but many of those businesses all also also carried the neil's yard name so you had and they were all founded by the same chap neil's yard remedies is a, is a very well-known high street brand now uh, there was the neil's yard whole foods the warehouse where where uh, you know you have one of the f- one of the pioneering businesses to to sell you know health foods and you know organic foods There was the mill where where flour was ground to supply Neil's Yard Bakery. So there was this kind of really kind of vibrant community of generally fairly young different thinking people for the time um, Mm -hmm. who kind of worked together and you know that made them, that made them, uh, you know, that, that created an energy in that physical place in Neil's Yard which was very I think very attractive and certainly You know, to me, as someone buying cheese in those early days and before I started, there was something about the place that you couldn't Mm. quite put your finger on, but it was different.
0: I agree, yes, I found myself sort of gain back on my meagre bookseller's salary, but trotting you know, again into the shop to buy what seemed to me, you know, at the time very expensive cheese. But sort of really interest but I, I think always aware of the interest of the people behind the counter and what they were doing. You know, it was very different, which I think as a bookseller, you know, I think people who sell books love books. And yeah. I got the feeling that the people in that shop love cheese. You know, it was that which is a very positive energy, isn't it?
1: It was. And I, I think I think so you you know, you had so you had that you had the the you know the general environment which was this community of businesses, all doing different things but all brought together, tied together by a philosophy, um, and an energy which was you know which was which they part which they contributed to and was really quite um, you know was 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 really uh, quite inspiring. Um, then you had uh, all of these cheeses that were unknown, a, a cast of customers that were nearly all British, and yet. here were some British cheeses being introduced to a, you know, a a public that knew nothing about the fact that Britain had great cheeses produced in its country. So that was...
0: Yeah, I think we should pause there just to point out that, you know, there was, yeah, there was quite, I think it's very hard to imagine now because we're so you know, decades later, but British cheese was really um, not known and respected. I mean, I think people knew cheddar And people Mm. then looked to France, you know, it was really seen that it was French cheese were very dominant, the way that French food, uh, the reverence for French food that we've had in British culture for a long time was really there in cheese. And so it was very radical in a way to be saying to people, look, you know, we've got great cheeses in Britain too. And that's very much what Randolph did. And it wasn't. Easy, was it? Because we should, you know, Randolph set off travelling around the country to bring back, to visit the farms. And this is, again is pre internet, which we have to say, because mm-hmm. information was so much harder, you know, information that it was word of mouth and talking to people and getting recommendations. And, fi- you know, so I'm guessing that must have been how Randolph found out about people, you know, and then set off to visit someone, you know, in the middle of driving up to Yorkshire, or where they went to find cheese. Tell us about that aspect of it. Well, I
1: yeah i mean i think uh to, you know if if to, if to set the scene for how the cheese world was in the uk at that time for specialist cheese um you know uh, as you say and i remember this even even 10 years after the dairy began um trading when i started many people would walk into the cheese shop and ask for a, a continental cheese type that was familiar to them not realizing that they were in an environment where there's only british cheese being sold but ask for a gruyere ask for a you know, ask for those types that basically were the main staple for British consumers, mm. um, and then you know you'd have to respond to that, and then take them on a journey uh, amongst the cheeses that we had in our own galaxy. Um, so, uh, but the other the other thing that in the earlier days, and again before my time there, but when Randolph was really setting out, you know, the the the, the, the landscape for British cheese was absolutely dominated by, um, you know, by industrial cheese. so cheese that was produced in an industrial fashion of with with you know not a great deal of interest cheap and not very tasty so Mm -hmm. you had this other perception that you know of the british cheese that was there also wasn't very good so you know in a way it was kind of a pincer movement Um, (laughs) and and that was kind of what he was up against on the other hand uh you know that it was also very exciting because what an opportunity Um, uh, because, uh, uh, you know, there were great cheeses to be found in Britain still. I mean, they were short in supply um, and, you know, the steady decline of of specialist cheese produced in the UK had been in a decline for decades. Um, Mm. But there were still a few cheeses uh, being made the old way um, in different parts of the country. And as you say, you you know, as Randolph began to realise that in the 80s, he did make it his business... To get in uh i think it was a 2cv that he first drove around the country <laughs> trying to find out where these cheeses were being made and actually as a fellow cheesemaker himself you know in some cases making cheese with these people mm. um you know with these cheesemakers i think um you know uh, uh i i you know i'm aware though i wasn't there at the time but but you know randolph telling me about Early visits to the community of what became subsequently known as the new wave of cheesemakers in the southwest, in the sort of Totnes, Devon area, there were a few making different types of cheese, albeit not native, you know, native to the U- recipes, native to the UK, more continental inspired or just pure inventions. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, but 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 still, uh, you know, a, a quite a dynamic, a quite pioneering group. Uh, of a community of 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 cheesemakers that he was drawn to, and spent quite a bit of time to, and whose cheeses we ended up selling, you know, in the shop in the early days in the early in the early eighties.
0: Was Robin um, Congdon one of those? He
1: was. Yeah. yeah. Robin was one of them, and the other one that we whose cheese we were also selling in you know, when I started in the early nineties was Devon Garland, which was a oh, cheese yeah. made by Hilary Charnley. Which was kind of a take on a on a kaffili with a with a um, a band of herbs through the middle, mm. um, which actually was a very sort of pleasant cheese to eat, a Moorish, and uh, you know that was that was you know the, those sort of the two the the stars you know from those early days from that community of cheesemakers that we carried and sold throughout the eighties and into the and, and into the early 90s and you know with robin's cheeses although they're now made by ben harris um you know robin's still kind of a you know in the background a little bit not so much but still around you know we 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 Carry those cheeses to this day. I mean, Yeah, I they're delicious. You've yeah. been carrying those cheeses for over 40 years and they remain, they remain, they continue to remain on a small scale and they remain absolutely delicious, as you say.
0: So, in a way, it was very much that Randolph had to create relationships, I'm guessing, because by going out and visiting and saying to people, I've got a shop in London and I want your cheese, and that's, it was quite different, wasn't it? It was unusual. Yeah, he had quite a lot of barriers to overcome, but I imagine being a cheesemaker himself. That must have really helped because he would have understood what they were doing
1: yeah well i i I think that um you know one of the one of the advantages and you know one of the things that uh, that certainly set uh neil's yard dairy's shop out compared to the way other shops sold in the 90s and even to this day although more are doing it is is the way that we taste and engage with customers when we sell Mm. cheese to them you know and and in the very early days you know, that was something that came about because Randolph was making stuff that day or the team, were, you know, they were making cheese in that location and selling from the counter at the front and because they were making every day, things were changing. And so yeah. there was, there was a, there was, there was an interest to understand whether or not what was being made was any good. <laughs> and yeah, And the way to qualify that was to actually give it to the customers to taste. And then get some feedback, confirmation that it was good, or else feedback that maybe it could have, it could have been a bit another way, um, and 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 use that to help to inform the kind of development of the of the products that were being made there. And I think that same thing was true as as the dairy, as Neil's Yard Dairy started to bring cheeses in from other cheesemakers around the country. You know, they were they were cheeses that were kind of unknown to those that were working behind the counter, as well as those people that were coming in and buying them. Because as we said at the beginning, uh, you know, specialist British cheeses were unknown to the British consumer. Uh, mm. as, as odd as that seems. Um, yeah, it's really now. hard to take uh, that it, in, I it, think. It was, it was yeah. how it was. So, you know, now we continue to taste cheese out because the cheeses are made every day and they're not always exactly the same and they're always they're always changing slightly and so we want to make sure that the customers that are buying the cheese are happy with what they're going to get mm-hmm. with, with what they might buy or choose something else and be aware that it wasn't necessarily the same as the cheese the same cheese that they bought the last time they were in yeah but in the early in the early days uh, uh, as Randolph has explained it to me uh, yes we 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 did that that's how we sold cheese because we wanted to make sure customers were happy with what they were buying but it was also we also did it because we we didn't know ourselves whether the Mm. cheese was good and so there was this exchange between two parties on either side of the counter both you know trying to understand whether this thing here that we were standing over was any good or not and whether or not we should be selling it and they should be buying it yeah and so um you know that's kind of what set that that way of of engaging with the food and 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 you know the retail experience that you know a lot of people also enjoy about um, visits to Neals Yard Dairy as well as the cheese itself was that that experience and and I think that uh, you know in the early days uh, the, the the need to do it was great because we just didn't know anything ab- about the cheeses that we were selling and the best way to learn more about them was uh, to taste them with our customers and see whether they like them because, obviously, ultimately, I think in uh, you know in the the modern food world, the decisions about what customers like is not made by the customers themselves. It's made by the people that are actually supplying the food and, uh. and or and or buyers in larger mm-hmm. organisations who are preoccupied with things, perhaps that are more important to them than how the food tastes, more how it right. costs or how it's packed or you know uh, uh, other things like that but ultimately you know the consumer should have the final say I think and I think that was Neil's you know that was that was very that's always been at the heart of Randall's philosophy is that it, it's the consumer who will, who will decide what the pathway is for how this this cheese evolves and if the cheese is good and we encourage the cheesemaker to make a cheese that tastes great then we will probably sell more of it and I think it's that feedback from the actual consumer who's the ultimate who's the final buyer in not uh, the buyers that have influenced the direction of quality over many decades of recent recent decades um buyers in supermarkets who are maybe not prioritizing how the cheese tastes as the number one reason for them <laughs> buying the cheese
0: yeah one th- i just want to talk about you know neil's yard dairy you know you set the context really well jason and what's interesting is that i think it's allowed some fantastic Makers, sort of British farmhouse cheesemakers, to to be brought to the public, and it'd be really interesting to talk about them. I'd be very interested in hearing, you know, about Kirkham's Lancashire, which is a wonderful cheese from Lancashire. Tell us, but tell us about that because that's a long, again, it was a long relationship between Niels Yard Dairy and the Kirkham's who make this cheese on their farm, isn't it?
1: It is. I mean, actually, the the Lancashire that Randolph first sold. Uh, at Neil's Yard Dairy, when he introduced that cheese to um, the lineup, was made by the Butlers. Jean Butler was was running the farm at that time, and Randolph would visit her. And uh, this would be in the '80s, and as as time went on, uh, they, you know, the butlers, uh, gr- they, 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 they developed the size of their business. It became a bit bigger, and you know, their direction of travel was one where they were making much more. And mm-hmm. Randolph, uh, Randolph decided. Well, Randolph had a conversation with Jean because the cheese sales were just dipping. And actually, it was Jean who introduced Randolph to Ruth Kirkham and said, "Oh, well, perhaps you should try Ruth's Cheeses." And actually, that introduction I think was made sometime uh, in the middle of the 1980s, and so actually it wasn't the first Lancashire Neals Yard Dairy sold; mm-hmm. it was the second one. As it turned out, the, ch- the cheese at the time that Ruth was making it was a cloth-bound cheese that was buttered, but was then uh, embalmed in wax, as was the, the trend oh, in those days. Okay. And the cheese was still delicious, but uh, you know the move towards waxing cheese, which was. A much bigger thing in the in the in the sort of sixties 70s, seventies eighties uh you know and something that was encouraged by the larger buyers, easier mm-hmm. to handle and so on yeah um kept moisture in didn't lose so much moisture uh, the Kirkhams made an made a beautiful cheese, albeit that it was waxed, but Randolph was very keen that actually Ruth go back to the way that you know probably Ruth's mum made it bef- mm-hmm. Ruth's mum would have made it before, which was just a natural buttered cloth rind which mm-hmm. was a traditional way of making lancashire and indeed the butlers had made it that way too right but but randolph was very you know fond of the cheese uh was was committed to the idea that if the if the wax was um no longer applied that this cheese really could be something and then also backed backed it by saying you know because um, the cheese that that ruth was making she was she wasn't being paid a great deal for there was a kind of let's call it, uh, you know, a market price for Lancashire cheese, yeah. you know, the generic type of cheese yeah. that was made in that part of the world. And so um, Randolph said, look, um, I think w- we, our customers would be very willing to, to pay, you know, a significantly higher price that we would, that we would, we will pay you uh, mm-hmm. if you can, if you can, can, you know, if you can revert to making the cheese the way that you used to make it, which is, um, to not put the wax on. So she agreed. Right. And in a way, uh, went back to the more traditional style of Lancashire cheese making that, um, her, you know, that her mother would have been making and that her son now makes and that she, you know, she reverted to um, with, with Randolph's encouragement.
0: That's fascinating, isn't it? Because that's a real impact you know or, or on preserving a tradition isn't it in mm. the world and that's very interesting that randolph could use in a way that's with the retail power of Neil's yard dairy or having an outlet with customers you know interested in good cheese and prepared to you need know, to pay you know pro- proper money for it and and want and wanting it well isn't I, that I, wonderful that's a great sort of um use of that great relationship in a way well I, th- I, th-
1: I think there's a couple of you know um, key messages from that particular uh, that particular story and that one is that a cheesemaker making uh, a product that's delicious, that's uh, made the way that it has traditionally been made, or you know has got m- more of the traditions in the in the in the way that the cheese is made,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, should be encouraged. should should be should be rewarded. So yeah. that what they're doing uh, actually is viable financially for them, so that they continue to be motivated to con- to to do it in the future. Yeah, and I think it was getting to a point where it was really difficult for the Kirkhams to to kind of see the way forward because, you know, it was a more uh, they made it on a very small scale. I think John only had you know when I started maybe thirty or forty head, but it was not a very big operation. It's uh, still not a big operation now, but it's you know two or three times the size that it was then. Mm-hmm. But I think also just in, in, sort of, in terms of marketing and, and, and clarifying for the consumer what the value proposition is, if you have something which is you know, considered by the consumer to be a generic type of food, let's call it Lancashire, and one is made on a farm on a small scale and one is made on a factory and they're all the same price. Um, yeah. you, you, you make it really difficult to under, for the consumer to understand what this value proposition is because it's already complicated by the fact that it has the same name.
0: Yes quite you yes. know so, yeah. so
1: one of the ways that you can you can achieve that is to actually say, well, this is this Lancashire. you know it has its merits and it's made on a larger scale and it's a good cheese and it's worth this. This cheese here is also called Lancashire, but it's actually made by a human. <laughs> mm. Not in a factory. It's made by this. In this case, Mrs. You know, Mrs. yes Kirkham. Kirkham. Yes.
3: Yeah. So
1: there's a, a and and actually, it's worth X. So you mm. help the consumer to understand wh- what the difference is between these two value propositions through price. At the yeah, same time, that's interesting. At the same time, rewarding the business uh, that's making it on a small scale, so that they are actually producing it in a way that's viable financially for them, so that they're motivated to continue. Which is why so many. Small makers disappeared, you know, in the in the yeah. post-war decades because it just was not viable um, for them to produce based on the market price that they were told that they would be paid for that cheese. For a version of a generic type which was being made on a much larger scale elsewhere, and with which they could not compete.
0: Thinking of this desire, Randolph to protect, I you know, I, didn't, I suppose protect, protect cheese traditions, but cheese traditions that he valued, or mm. you know, the the aspects of traditional cheesemaking that he thought made really good cheese. This yeah. is perhaps a moment to then talk about um, Stichelton, which seems which is yeah. a very interesting story. If you look at Neil in the story of the British of the cheese world and of Neil. Yeah. Yard Dairy. Let's talk about that.
1: Yeah, that cheese has been, I think Joe and Randolph set that business up in 2006. So it's been going 16 16 years now. Niels Yard Dairy had been selling, as it continues to sell now, uh, cheese made by the Colson Bassett and District Dairy, a Stilton, a delicious cheese. Probably Wanted, my Yeah, desert, I love it. Probably, <laughs> probably my desert island <laughs> cheese, if you said to me. You know, people always ask, yeah, it could be you yes. What's your favourite cheese? Oh, well, that's an yeah. impossible question to ask. But I think a, a much more reasonable question to ask is, you know, what is your desert eye? If there's only one cheese that you could eat and you yeah, only have a choice, what, what, yes. what would it be? And probably that Colson Bassett would be mine. But anyway, yeah. the you know we there's a there's a finite amount of that cheese that was available um, to us. Uh, and so it became clear that as our business grew, Colson Bassett's capacity to supply us with the quantities that we need given they have a much wider market and they wanted to have, you know, um, uh, not too much dependency on on uh, on their sales to us. Yeah. It became clear that you know we would we would need to try and find another source of of a blue cheese in order to be able to complement the sales of colson Bassett. so randolph and uh, joe decided to, to get together to see if they could come up with a, a cheese that was made and inspired by that recipe to you know help us grow our business for that for that for that sort of type and uh, and so stitchleton was born stitchleton was the name that was given to that um, so it's a nice cheese. nod
0: to that. So yeah. the name is a nod, in a way, to the to Stilton. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Stilton, but, Stilton but, but it's a different yeah, cheese. Stilton, Stilton,
1: Stilton well, is yeah. it? Yeah. The, you know, the, the Stilton is a protected name. There is yep. a PDO that sits over the um, production of all Stilton, and so you know, for that reason, you know, it yeah. can't. Although, although um, there are similarities in the way the cheese is made, you know, we are able to call it Stilton. So we had to find something else, and so that was the name that was selected. And actually, you know, it's, 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 it's exciting in a way because it's, it's sort of created a new old tradition, if you like. Because mm. Stilton as a type hadn't been made with raw milk since Colson Bassett made it last, I think, in 89. And so, you know, a cheese of that type hadn't been made for, for a, well, a couple of decades. But actually, Stilton is kind of a, it's, it's kind of a new old thing. And that mm. makes it that makes it exciting, and and actually, I think we've come, you know, Joe, who's, uh, the, you know, was was we've, the main active partner yeah. in that. You've spoken to Joe before. We
0: have indeed. Yeah, yes.
1: you know, it's a it's a very difficult cheese to make. Probably one of the most difficult cheeses that you you know of all the cheeses oh. that are made out in the world. I think it's probably one of the most complicated cheeses to make. It's very difficult. A but raw I think, milk
0: blue in that way. A, yeah, a well, raw milk yeah.
1: blue, but it's made over a long period. You know, by the time the cheese comes out of the moulds from the time that, you know, the, the, you know, you introduce minuscule amounts of starter culture at the beginning of the process and the cheese comes mm-hmm. out of the moulds, it's five days later. You know, mm. it. There's a lot happens in between. So at each point in, you know, there's, there are lots of twists and turns in that five day period. And and, and there are lots, lots of places that it can go wrong. So, you know, I think, you know, Joe, by his own admission, I think would say it's, it's, it's taken a little while, but he is making some fantastic cheese now. and, And we're very, very, very pleased to have it to sell because... You know when it's when it's on, it's one of the most remarkable cheeses you can eat. I think.
0: Yeah, I agree. Yes, yeah, so it's it's when it hits its highs, they're mm. high, aren't they? Yeah, so, very, yeah. very high and actually indeed. that interview with Joe, which is on the, it's worth listening to it because he's just it's he just talks really beautifully. It's a wonderful, um, it was a wonderful interview with him. So yeah, yeah. a real and and said that sort of being fired up by Randolph, he, he sort of says, you know, it was Randolph took me to a pub and, yeah. and maybe said, do you want cheese. to make yeah. a cheese? Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So just a really sort of, it's just another interesting sample. I think one of the things I sort of love about Neil's Dairy is that it's exactly what you're saying about New Old, isn't it? Because for me, (laughs) you know, here's a shop in which I can find wonderful examples of cheeses that are historic in British cheese culture. So you can have Mm -hmm. Cheddar's, Stilton, Lancashire, Red Leicester, Wensleydale. And yet, alongside them, cheeses which are not, Historic cheese. These are new cheeses made by wonderful cheesemakers. So, you, know, you think of St James by Martin Gott, mm. you know, Mini, you know, um, Berkswell, uh, yeah. you know, Tumworth. I mean, St Jude's. You know, they just it goes on and on. There's I'm not it's not that he sells so many cheeses, but what I mean is there's this real range of tradition and vitality, you know, yeah. of cheesemaking vitality, and I love that. I love that mix.
1: Well, I think also uh, what Randolph, you know, R- Randolph's approach was always um, encouraging collaborative and Mm. so when you know when people arrived at the door and uh, explained that they had an idea to make something that um, hopefully we might be able to sell but how should they go about it and what sort of cheese should they make you know they were welcomed in and conversations began and there was you know if it looked like this was something that we could help with then there would be a collaboration that in some cases might might take quite and it might take a year or two or three before mm. we'd really start to see the fruits of those exchanges and that labour. Yeah. Um and so uh, you know there was a lot of his time, our time invested yeah uh, in believing in and supporting uh, these people who were setting out.
0: That's exactly the context in which the name of New Zealand would come up is when I talk to cheesemakers. Like if I talked to Johnny Crickmore who makes Barons by God Mm. or many others some of the american they just go that's exactly what happened is that they yeah. you know had an idea wanted some help were interested came to nursery Dairy, were given you know support and encouragement and advice and guidance yeah. and exactly right yeah. yeah and it's very it's a lot of which i something i always really admire you know so it's behind the scenes so you know as a customer you don't really see it no. but but there's this huge sort of investment that Niels Yarderi have put into the world of cheese in terms of sharing cheese knowledge you know and gen, and supporting you know and, the, and it's to an encouragement I'm guessing you know it's, it can be really demoralizing if you're trying to make a new cheese it's not going well it's a slog so a bit you know someone to talk to who sort of believes in where you're trying to get to and gives you some really good advice that must that sort of help again that Connectivity must be very important.
1: I I think it is. And also, um, the other thing to point out is that in these instances where you have, um, uh, you know, someone sort of setting out, uh, I mean, first of all, it should be pointed out that the reason they're setting out to want to make cheese is because um, they're generally people, uh, not always, but they're often people who are already dairy farmers Mm. who are struggling to make ends meet as a liquid milk business. Yeah. Because the premium is not, really sufficient particularly on a smaller scale to be able to make I mean milk price is good now but for most of the years I've been in the business the milk price has been very poor mm-hmm. and so one of the ways to add value is to make a value-added product which would be cheese so yeah. so they, they're kind of coming at it through necessity but actually um, you know uh, uh, the, the work that not just Niels Dairy, but there are other you know there are other um, protagonists in this story in the British cheese industry who've supported these cheesemakers. There's been a, mm-hmm. there has been a, it's been a, uh, um, a real, you know, in agri- in British agricultural terms, um, especially the cheesemaking industry has been one of the few big standout successes. Um, because, you know, uh, we have an environment where uh, there are, um, there is a demand for British cheese because the cheese is good. And because that, you know, there is a better premium now for the cheese that's made of that quality. And so, you know, people are attracted to go into a career as a cheesemaker, but also often there as a farmer, there is a motivation to do that. Like Johnny Crickmore, the story mm. you know, that you mentioned just now, you know, he, he came to us um, and to Randolph to make a cheese because he couldn't see how else he might be able to make ends meet if he remained as a liquid milk business. And yep. so, um, you know, the, there was an awareness. That actually, there's something, there's something going on in the, in the specialist British cheese industry, that's 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 positive. I want to be part of it, yeah, um, uh, for a number of different reasons. Uh, and I, th- I think also that um, you know the work that that Rand and the dairy and there are others, you know, is not it's not just Randolph. Yes, it's Bronwyn sure. and There's David, and there are other people who've all been involved in this as well. Yeah. Um, but that work with those with those people that some of whom you've mentioned, you know, um, uh, there's, there's, there's and the uh, who makes the tongue worth and there's there's Johnny that we mentioned and there's uh, Martin Gottlieb and there are plenty of others. Yeah. Um, you know, that work in the early days, uh, sometimes as I said, can, could, it could take months or, you know, a year or two or three before the cheese really hits its stride. Um, and of course that benefits not just Neil's Yard Dairy and the producers, but also there are other um, you know there are there are other wholesalers out there and other people buying cheese who are also supporting that who are all part of the community and they they're also as important and i think that um, you know the the, the cheesemakers depend on all of us not just neils yard dairy in sure. order to, to 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 survive themselves and make their business viable because they can't rely on one but it, it you know but the work that we do help you know that that we've done in those instances has benefited not just our own business, but I think a wider community of businesses that supports the the, the, the cheese maker. And so the whole thing is um, self-sustaining because because it's a community effort. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, if we were to, if Niels Yard Dairy had a different outlook, which would be a more conventional outlook, which would be to sort of protect and hide, uh, you know, say like, well, you know, we do this and then you do this for us. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, we're going to give you this intellectual property, or this support or this encouragement. But you know, you you know, you just have to then sell only to us that wouldn't, it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't be sustainable in the long run, I don't think. So I think that it's that, you know, if you take this right back to the beginning of the conversation and talk about the roots of Neil's Yard Dairy and the sort of community that was Neil's Yard, mm. there is this culture that, that was set in, you know, that was set in motion by the founder, of all those businesses, a guy called Nick Saunders, that, you know, that that set up the dairy with Randolph um, and all those other businesses, that that they were a community of businesses that collaborated and worked together. Um, And I think that spirit of sharing, of collaboration, of generosity, uh, you know, and that this idea of, you know, the tide, doing what we can together to make the tide rise and have more boats floated on it, I think is Mm. something that is very much at the sort of core of what we're about. Um, And that's, you know, that's something that started at the very beginning and something that Randolph has always been very, you know, keen to encourage, wittingly or unwittingly.
0: Yes, that's that's beautifully put. Yeah, and it's one of the things that's always appealed to me about you know through my years of writing about the British cheese scene is that sense I've got of of a community, I suppose, and people supporting each other and helping each other. I mean, in fact, we saw that obviously with the um, in the pandemic where people were supporting other cheesemakers when they you know someone like Graham Kirkham sets a farm shop on his farm to sell yeah. cheese and doesn't just sell his cheese, he sells no, exactly. his friends' cheeses exactly. you know. because and that's really. You know, that's just something very great and very collaborative about it. The
1: other thing to, to add, which I think is an impo- important to mention at this mm-hmm. point in the discussion, is that, you know, Randolph's influence on the kind of community of cheesemakers. Also, there was an important moment in time, which I think was around 1990, when he created the Specialist Cheesemakers Association, which is, which is the group that kind of now sits over you know a lot of the specialist cheesemakers that produce cheese in this country but you know that's a it's a small but strong organization that up all of these you know mm. brings all of these cheesemakers together so that you know that when you talk about Graham's got friends that are other cheesemakers they are his friends yeah um, they are but you know they are a band of brothers and sisters and you know they come together under the sort of you know, under the umbrella of the Special Cheesemakers Association, you know where they meet annually. Um, uh, but you know that was something that Randolph created. Uh, in it, there was a need for it at the time. It was a reaction to you know to a, a you know a sort of uh, a, the Listeria crisis at the time that yeah. banded banded everyone together. But it, it, it it's created that that sense of community and belonging that hmm. um, you know in quite uh, uh, you know as cheese making can be quite a lonely and isolating profession and yet it doesn't feel like that in Britain because they really are it really is a band of uh, a small band of people that know each other believe in each other and and push each other to, to you know, to do to do well and to do better. Um, and I think that you know, it, it is just worth mentioning that you know that that Brilliant. was something that yes. didn't exist before, but was created that ran created and um yeah you know I think is to this day is a, is a really important part of, uh the British cheese making community.
0: I guess that point of reputation is not that British cheese was not highly regarded, and yet what's really striking I think is the way that Niels Yarderi have sort of taken, British cheese abroad and created an ex you know taken to i was interested and you know a lot about this jason obviously i was Mm. interested in how news dairy took british cheeses to to france perhaps we could talk about that first and then talk about america yeah
1: well well i mean um uh this is a subject closer to my own heart only because uh you know it's the area of work that i was more involved in um you know i always had a you know my vision before i started the dairy for my future was to export great british cheese because i had you know we talked at the beginning about how you know, British consumers didn't know that there was great cheese being produced in Britain. Um, And it came as a great surprise to me as a, a, you know, pretty (laughs) avid cheese consumer before I started and knew about the dairy, that we actually, and it was Colson Bassett Stilton, in fact, was the cheese that Ah, I I tasted that made me think, hang on a minute, I always bought continental cheese, but why don't I know that great cheese is made in this country? And so it was that that led me on the path to thinking, ah, if I don't know that, and I'm in the UK. Then sure as sure as eggs as little chickens. Then then people <laughs> people around the world don't know that either. So I could combine the two things that I'm know I'm passionate I'm passionate about, which is you know gr- good tasting cheese and and travel to to mm-hmm. take these cheeses abroad and introduce them to an you know, an unsuspecting public. And so that's um, that's how it, that's kind of we, we did have a customer or two in the States. So actually, it was the it was the States that we started our export uh-huh. um, business. But 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 I I personally was always keen to um, export the best British cheese to France. One, because, you know. People would say yeah, that <laughs> you can't do that. Um, yep. But also because I grew up speaking French, um, uh-huh. I was taught by Franciscan nuns in the middle of Cairo as a kid. And so grew, grew okay. up spe- I didn't grew up- know that, Jason. No, no, I right. grew up yeah. speaking French. And yeah. so I had an advantage that the language was not a barrier. And so I thought, right, I, I'm going to yes. make this my business to get the best British cheese. And it, well, I will say in the early 90s, when we first started, it was a slog. Um,
0: well, we, I was I was going to ask how you agree. Was it just total, sort of indifferent? I mean, like incredulity that we, you'd be even well, doing that. <laughs>
1: well, actually, it, it, it's funny because um, uh, it, this also involves the Kirkham's that we referred to earlier on. Yes. Um, there was a customer who came into the into Neil's Yard in the original shop that you spoke about in Neil's Yard. Yeah. When I was starting out, and uh, he would arrive every Saturday morning early. His name was Stephen Saltzman. I think his dad was Harry Saltzman, the um, you know the film director, did James Bond films in the sixties yeah. and seventies. And anyway, yeah. he was a, a fascinating chap. Often would speak on Speaker's Corner on Sundays. He was a you know he was Gosh. a really he was a really good speaker, and he would arrive a larger than life character, and he would arrive on Saturday morning. and His favourite cheese was Mrs. Kirkham's Lancashire. In fact, he would sometimes he would he would ha- he had an ode to Mrs Kirkham that he would sometimes (laughs) deliver in a a shop full of people anyway he was only there a a year or so um, in in my first year before he got a job uh in Paris moved to Paris and said he said to me I'm going to I'm going to visit all the cheese shops in Paris I'm going to find the best one I'm going to make them buy Mrs Kirkham's Lancashire Mm. so about a year and a half later I got a call from a rather a rather bemused cheesemonger in the fourth arrondissement in Paris, a guy called Pascal Tortier said, do you know this chap, Stephen Saltzman? Um, <laughs> uh, he's a customer of mine and he's told me I must buy this cheese from you. <laughs> <laughs> and so so that's how it began. Um, Brilliant. Uh, and so I worked out how to get the cheese to Pascal. Um, we 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 had a an intermediary who was a, a friend of mine who was a che- a, a wine monk a wine a merchant in Paris who helped with the logistics uh, and actually it was the ambassador's residence where the cheese was cross docked. <laughs> anyway, that's a, that's another story. But anyway, we got the cheese to Pascal, which made Stephen Saltzman very happy, and actually that's how our relationship began uh, oh. with our first cheese. Uh, cheese, cheese wholesale customer in Paris yeah um, uh, 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 and Pascal and I became great friends and we are to this day and actually he really he really was you know arguably one of the best if not the best cheese shops in the city and mm-hmm. um, and you know and actually had other friends uh, who are cheese shops and cheesemongers who were equally interested in also buying great cheese from the UK um, but it was a slow business and it involved you know time spent in those cheese shops uh tasting cheese out to 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 french to their to those cheese shops customers because i people didn't know that i was english or the cheese was english i would just taste it out and then they would they would buy it uh or if you said oh will you you know would you taste this cheese it's from england they half of them would say no Um, because of this perception that we talked about earlier on about The quality of British food, which was mm-hmm. not a misplaced, one to be honest, yeah. a lot of what yeah. they would have had cheese-wise from from the UK, and it would have been would have been awful,
2: yeah, because
1: that's what was available. But if you just gave them the cheese to taste and then uh, talked about the cheese in a lang- in an without an English accent, which I didn't really mm. have. Uh, you could get away with it and you'd drop in a bit later on that it was made in the UK <laughs> but by that point by that point you'd you know you'd you'd put the cheese in the, the mouth of the consumer and they'd already come back with some positive words about it yeah. so the, the job was largely done and so yeah it was a it was a slow business but because the cheese was great just as you know in the early days I think of Neil's yard dairy when Randolph um, started producing these cheeses and tasting them out with you know our earlier customers people were positive about it. The reception yeah. was good. And so, you know, they came back for it um, uh, again and again. And so that's how, you know, the the Parisian, you know, how the, the first the Parisian uh, market um, for our cheese began and then it spread out throughout the rest of the country. And actually, you know, France is, uh, has been uh, one of our strongest, has been our strongest export market for quite a number of years now, which, you know, uh, and and all that's been more complicated in the last three or four years because of logistics. Uh, you know, we have a very, very sort of large band of very loyal specialist cheese shops that buy cheese from us. And it's, you know, it's it's nice. It's nice and rewarding to see, albeit it's taken quite a long time to build.
0: I remember I went to Amsterdam and went into a cheese shop and there hmm. were these cheese. I was like, oh, are they, I think these are Zealand <laughs> Dairy cheeses, <laughs> yeah, you know, and they were yeah. like, yes, they are. You know, it's very, very interesting. And we should just talk. I won't take too much more of your time, Jason, yeah. but. I'd be interested in this to talk about America. I was interested yeah. in this because I have inter- seen you know. We've luckily I've talked to some fantastic American cheesemakers uh, mm. on this for the podcast, and it's very interesting in the sense that actually I think what they they looked at Britain, didn't they? In a way, I think this idea was quite inspiring yeah. to, to a lot of them, wasn't it? Um,
1: Definitely. Well, I mean, I yeah. think that um, uh, you know there are a lot of similarities. How the specialist cheese market in the U.S. has developed, mm. with how it developed in the U.K., albeit with a sort of twenty-year gap between the two. But you know, in the in the early eighties, there were very few specialist cheesemakers, and there was a very little awareness of specialist cheese that was produced locally. The same could be said of of you know the U.S. Um, specialist cheese marketplace in the mid to late nineties. You know, very right. few people making specialist cheese. Very yeah. little awareness amongst the consumers about American cheese. At all that was made, you know, in a in a, a of a specialist type, and so you know there were, I think there were similarities we could relate to, uh, mm. and our business could relate to because it had seen you know things develop from a very, from a from a small acorn as it were, um, and you know so there were lessons that we uh, could help yeah. that sort of nascent um America, specialist American cheese business with because. We kind of been there already, yeah. Um, uh, and actually, I've just been in Brazil, and, and I can I can relate to that there because the same thing's happening now, oh, kind of twenty years on that we saw happening in America. You know? Right. So you, you Fascinating, know, few, isn't it? Yes. A few, a few sort of um, quite you know inspired and dynamic, you, you know uh, pioneering spirits mm. making some great cheeses, but really in uh, in an environment where very few specialist cheeses are being made and. And and you know some of those people that you've spoken to, you know whether it's um, Andy Hatch or the mm. che- or you know his predecessor Mike Gingrich who started making Pleasant Ridge or the likes of David Gremmels, you know um, there are others who were also making cheeses in the nineties who were part of that early pioneering spirit, a group a group of of, of cheesemakers that you know have you know have kind of led the uh, have have led the way and shown this now much larger generation this next generation of yeah. Of, of, of budding cheesemakers that are coming through are, are, you know, are putting American cheese on the map. And actually, uh, I've just was in f- f- France last week um, with some some uh, some friends who are actually looking to introduce American specialists, Amer- the cheeses of Jasper Hill, introducing oh, American yeah. cheeses to a French audience. So oh, imagine, imagine yeah. that. You know yeah. the idea that you might have american specialist american cheeses made with raw milk were the ones that they were presenting mm. to a french audience i mean talk about Coles to newcastle but you know that's that's quite that's quite something so you know in the i would say in 20 years from 25 years from some of the first visits that we made to cheese uh, making operations and or invited some of those that were interested in making cheese to come and work with us or work with some mm. of our own cheesemakers you know there's there's been the same spirit of community and collaboration you know i think between our business and actually i mean we don't really have a vested interest in uh, in lots of these businesses because we don't we're not going to import the cheese because we sell british cheese yeah um we you know uh and in some cases actually we create a market which creates competition for the own for our own export business you know <laughs> Jas- yeah Jas- jasper hill do a cheddar we are yes. you know, we actually are slightly invested in that business and we work closely yeah. with them we're on the board there but you know their success has seen you know um a really good quality cheddar uh, appear made in the u.s a u.s made cheddar being sold in the u.s uh to some degree actually you know uh, You know, works against our own export cheddar sales. But you know, that's in the in the micro. But in the macro, it's back to that rising tide that I'm talking about. More consumers aware of better cheese is good for everyone, and I think. I
0: remember, yes, that's right, and I remember that very much. Does has always been Randolph's approach, hasn't it? I mean, I remember him saying, you know, at the and Randolph. Played a huge role in the creation of Borough Market. Um, mm-hmm. And one of just said to me, he said, You know, people are scared of competition. I'm like, Just bring, you know, what we need is, you know, I'm not, someone can come and open a specialist cheese shop down the road from me. They're mm-hmm. welcome, you know, because Absolutely. it would just bring customers to this area. And he, exactly. he was never afraid of that, was he? He always no, no, just. Not at all. Um, yeah. The
1: more people, the more consumers there are that are aware of great cheese and are, are, are you know, are, are keen to support those cheese makers that make those great cheeses the more of them that they are the better it is for everyone the more opportunity it creates for people to go into cheesemaking as a vocation the more opportunities it creates for um people to go into cheese selling cheese mongering mm. as a vocation and so the whole that you know the whole thing is uh um you know it, it, you're you're encouraging the whole thing to go up um, and so then that, int- that introduces you know there's more new cheesemakers coming in, that encourages more cheese shops, which encourages you know which is more you know more consumers being introduced to a better range of better quality cheese, and so the whole thing rises. And I think, you know, if if we don't have uh, you know if we if we if we see those uh, you know if we see that stopping, you know people no longer going into uh, cheese making or not motivated to to make cheese. Um, you know, as a as a vacation, uh, mm-hmm. or even to sell it, then you you have to ask yourself the question: Well, why is that? Why well, is the cheese is the quality not good enough? Is the people not being remunerated enough? Uh, you know, are there other reasons why that's the case? And that's when we should worry. But as it stands, you know, there there is a there is a community out there of of cheese makers and cheesemongers that that you know that is growing. Um, yeah. And as long as that as long as that's happening, it it will be happening because there are more consumers out there, more people wanting to eat it, and mm. and you know that's got that's good for the it's good for everyone you know in that chain.
0: Wonderful, well, brilliant, Jason. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you about Neals Yard Dairy and Randolph Hodgson. Thank you very much, Jason.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Jenny.
2: Online on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM.
0: This morning on a slice of cheese. I'm very happy to have with me today cheesemaker Jamie Montgomery, famous for Montgomery's cheddar, which is a very fine example of what a farmhouse cheddar can be and one of my favourite cheddars. Hello, Jamie.
4: Good morning, Jenny.
0: Jamie, I was really interested. You know, cheddar as a cheese is very widely available in lots of different forms. Um, You know, it's very mass produced. Your cheese is rather different, it's a farmhouse cheddar. Made in a very traditional way. Could you tell me a little bit about the the story of of your family and how and cheddar making, on it is cheddar making on your farm. It really is a farmhouse cheese in that sense, isn't it?
4: Absolutely. Uh, my grandfather bought the farm here in 1911, but cheese making was part of the particulars of sale, so it was already being made on the farm, which is no big surprise because in Somerset, with our fantastic grass growth, in it. Before the wars, there was, there was hundreds of cheesemakers in Somerset because we were far enough from, away from London that we couldn't really sell the milk there. And we had to do something with all this milk that the cows kept producing, whether we wanted them to not. So as soon as a farm got any kind of numbers of cows, they had to make cheese. And in Somerset, the cheese you made was a hard cheese uh, because you're far enough away from the market. And we we were just doing the same as everybody else, and so I'd like to think that we, partly by accident, are, are holding out to try and do the, exactly the same thing that something like four hundred cheesemakers were doing um, between the wars.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, when you read sort of histories of British cheese, it's very sobering how many. The, you know the, the catastrophic effect that the wars have and, and the you know second world war on on cheese on that traditional farmers cheddar making of farmers cheese making after the second world war you know it's massive decline so you, but your your family carried on was so was it your was it your mother who was the um the, che- the cheese maker in your family he,
4: uh, yes yes uh my my mum kept her kept her interest in the cows and and the cheese making uh my father moved from Kent and took on the arable side of the business. And there was a real sense that there was something special about only using our own milk. And I don't think it was really defined by the fact that we could stay unpasteurised. That was certainly part of the picture, but it wasn't the whole picture. I think there was something simply fundamentally good about having control over all of the milk that you were going to turn into cheese and then taste that mum never really um never really contemplated the idea of expanding by buying lots of milk from other people and and changing the 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 core of the business which just after the war most of the farmhouse cheesemakers that that carried that that started cheesemaking again after rationing they couldn't see the point in mm. employing people to make the cheese when they only had a limited amount of milk, that the temptation to buy some milk was was terrific, so most of them did, which then made them pasteurise, which then took them really towards the block, plastic-wrapped shape, simply driven by by going after scale. Right. And through not going after scale, we've been able to hold on to all of the traditions which It just turns out we were lucky in that the appreciation of all of those things that we've been always doing turned around and came back towards us sometime in the 90s.
0: Yes, it's something I've seen myself in my career as a food writer, you know, and yeah, and it is really interesting. So to think back to that time, you know, in a way what your your mother kept going, maintaining tradition, there were lots of pressures... um, to move towards sort of block cheddar and plastic rat, And one of the fact obviously, it was the milk. It seems to be a turning point for British farmers' cheesemaking comes with the, with the sort of closure, really, of the Milk Marketing Board in 1994. Is that... Um, would I... You know, can you tell me about that? Was that something you remember? Does that have an impact? Does that then encourage farmers to rather than sending their milk to start making cheese. or I mean, I know you were making cheese already, so perhaps it's a different story for your own family. Tell me your thoughts about that time.
4: Mm, yes, the ending of the, the Milk Marketing Board itself didn't impact us immediately. The, the impact came a little later. The story was that the Milk Marketing Board, in order to help the farmhouse cheesemakers, set up an agency, so it was... It was a cooperative agency which would help to sell our cheeses. And there was a, 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 a storage site in Wells. And we we only had to store the cheese on the farm for three months until it was just old enough to go on a lorry. And then we lost sight of it. Right. Uh, we would go to gradings and we would be paid according to the quality of the cheese. But the milk marketing board and and the setup of a which then became basically a company, were doing all the selling of the farmhouse cheese, which did make sense because they can afford to have good salespeople. And, but of course that then led, uh, through the eighties to the th- through the rise of the supermarkets to a sense that if we weren't in a supermarket, they weren't really that interested in us. But that agency kept going until I think it was probably ninety six, when it was sold to Dairy Crest. Now Dairy Crest obviously was the biggest competitor to the farmhouse cheesemakers, so it was it was selling them the, the the agency of the minnows to the to the great whale.
0: Um, (laughs) yes and we could
4: could see we could see the writing on the wall for us basically after discovering a little bit more skullduggery that was going on behind the scenes as as traditional cloth band makers uh, we we discovered that we were being sold down the river and we very quickly had to build our own stores uh, and and all of a sudden we were faced with having to sell all our own cheese.
0: That's quite a task, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Big, it was
4: quite scary. Big change at the time. yes. Yeah.
0: And is this where, yeah. and so Niels Yard Dairy, do they, do, do they sort of take part at this point? Because Niels Yard Dairy, you know, were doing a lot to sort of, to try and discover, in a way, these um, farmhouse cheeses and bring them to market. Is, is that something that happens at this same stage?
4: That had already happened, thank goodness. And that's right. really, I mean, they did play a huge part in, in allowing us to achieve what we clearly needed to achieve because they'd, they'd been buying from us um, since 83 or so. And, but they would be having to go down to Wells to buy it. So Mrs so Rand, Randolph, cons- we should
0: Randolph. sort of put a name here, shouldn't we? Randolph Hodgson, yeah. who just yeah. has been such a sort of seminal figure in the world of British yeah. cheese. Um, yeah. yeah. So Randolph was going down to Wells, and and isn't the story that he was, to, and there was all the cheeses were anonymous, weren't they? They were numbered. They weren't. They weren't names they were, of
4: people. So he you really. I the story well, of he'd, Ray, Ray, that, he'd very quickly get to know, him. but there weren't many cheesemakers, and so the numbers. Right were very easy to read. Yes,
0: OK, so he, but, so he worked out. But did he work out that he liked your family's, your, the cheese that your mother was making at this point, or your, your family were making?
4: Yeah. But that was, that, that was sort of going to happen anyway to anybody who went into Wells and started looking around, at, and they would be shown the different numbers in order yeah. to find out what they preferred. So, so that was a sort of relatively inevitable event yeah. that he would find a choice but it wasn't as if he didn't know where the cheese was coming from.
0: Right. So he did, he did tell yes. me years
4: later that, that, and I, I sort of knew that when he was on his way down there, he would pop into the farm here because we're, we're right on the main road. Yeah. And he would pop in and have a chat with the cheesemakers. And and so, because he, he was a cheesemaker himself anyway in London. Yes. And yeah. so he'd get on and start chatting away. Because he knew that, as it is with cheesemaking, you have a little office just off the the make room. And at some point in the conversation, there is something in the make room that's going to need doing. And so the cheesemaker would disappear for five minutes to just go and start cutting or whatever. And so Randolph would then get the make book out that was sat on the table anyway. Flick back a few pages to the month that he knew that he would be looking at the cheese, run his finger down the make book, and decide which are the dates that were most likely to be the ones that he would like.
0: Huh.
4: Which I thought was absolutely brilliant. Yes, it's very that's really impressive, <laughs> isn't
0: it? Claire, that's brilliant. So, wow. so yes, yeah. yeah, so, in so, so obviously, this long, so Randolph oh, so Niels Neil's yeah. you're already buying yeah. your, your cheddar, your
4: significant the, amount,
0: yeah. Right. Brilliant. And do you? Um, and when you become sort of, I don't know what happens with the with the chairman in your family. Does it then pass on to you, Jamie? Do You then take on mm-hmm. the role of. And, yes. and did you? Yes. And those, did you those have were a, the
4: f- yeah. f- sort of first few years. I'd been only only been really home for a very few years, and and then I, I felt very lucky to be in that position. When the late nineties was a fantastic time for us personally the British Cheese Awards um was in its sort of infancy if you like but based in London it was the Duke of York's headquarters just um just behind Sloane Square yeah and halcyon days we won best cheddar and best traditional english cheese two years in a row
0: fantastic yeah.
4: and then during that second year the the wells our our agency disappeared. Mm -hmm. And in the third year, so the first year we were actually having to sell it ourselves, somebody came along and stole six tons of our best cheese. Goodness. Just before the next annual British Cheese Awards. And the press went absolutely mad for it. (laughs) The telephone just would not stop ringing of people wanting to find out where they could buy what was left of the cheese. And we, we'd got hold of the agency and said, look, we can't answer the telephone because we don't know where all the cheese is being sold. Can you tell us where you've been selling all our cheese? And they said, yeah, absolutely fine. We'll send you through a list. And so all of a sudden we knew all the people who had been buying our cheese. So we had the, we had our customer list just like
0: Fantastic. that. Fantastic. Isn't that
4: brilliant? Gosh, yeah. that was
0: sort of a lucky, so that theft actually had really good repercussions then, amazingly. Yeah.
4: It sort of set us on a different path, and it—it, it, uh, I think it helped everybody in a way because suddenly everybody was sort of interested. in, Oh, this this farmhouse cheese is something something a bit different. Why are all the papers putting so much, so many column inches for this if it isn't a story? So it was, yeah. it, was it was pretty good, really.
0: Brilliant. And so we should talk really about the, the you know your cheddar, Montgomery's cheddar, um, which is one of the. Um, The slave food movement, a presidium for artisan cheddar, and you're one of the three cheddar makers in that. Um, This is a presidium's slightly odd term, but really in a way it's sort of saying, look, this is like a... a, It's like, I suppose, a recognition of something they want to preserve um, and that they think is a really important food tradition to be maintained and they highlight the people who are maintaining it. And you're one of the three Somerset cheddar makers on that. Jamie, did you have a sense of what you know there's the mass market mass produced cheddar which is you know which is pretty wet i suppose and moist and very different from your cheddar which often you know which is very um savory and often quite drier than perhaps a lot of people would expect a cheddar to be tell me about your sort of your house style of cheddar in a way
4: yes you're absolutely you've you've already hit the nail on the head the the drier (laughs) more brittle uh texture of cheese um now Some of my earliest memories of anything, really, are I must have been very, very small when mum was going to gradings in the Wells store and walking in there and being very small. And I remember the the perspective of being handed down a very long way, a piece of cheese that mum (laughs) thought was worth me trying. Brilliant. And learning at, at my mother's knee that if you're going to taste cheddar at three months old, it's you do it all really with your fingertips the uh, texture of the cheese and how it breaks down under your fingers tells you more about it than what it's going to taste like at that age
0: that's fascinating of course that's um, when that's something yes you just you have to learn that through experience don't you yeah amazing
4: and and having had that so early on it just never leaves it just just never goes so and i think Perhaps that, and the fact that all of my life grading my own cheese, those firmer texture cheeses are the ones that have more of the umami, savoury, meaty, nutty notes. Mm-hmm. And the wet ones just go a bit acid. Um, and they might be a bit more fruity, but generally a bit more acid. Economically, it makes more sense to sell water. Yes. So making a drier <laughs> cheese is not not great sense economically. I've I've been lucky, I suppose, to have the luxury of being able to say, right, no, that's not the cheese I want to make. and and having mum about for as long as we did and knowing that I couldn't make a cheese that Mum didn't like either.
0: Ah, that's interesting. So did she um, like those those this that style, your, your, that sort of characteristic sort of drier, savory was that something is that a cheddar that style that she liked herself then?
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so no, I, I remember that very clearly. And and she would um, when we were in Wells, I got to know exactly what her taste was very very early on, because mm. she would then select maybe one or two batches to bring home when it reached twelve months of age, and so we were selling a tiny bit from from the home, so there was no secret which ones Mum liked.
0: Yeah. <laughs> And that's very different, presumably, from what Wells were. What they were after a different style. then, where they were sort of less, yeah, slightly sweet, less savoury. Right, that's so interesting, isn't it? Mm. And one of the things that characterises your your chin making form is that you use a pig mill. Is that correct?
4: Absolutely. Could you talk us
0: through what you might, sorry, just for people who don't know, explain what a peg mill is and what it does to the curd and what the other Mm. options would be, because that'd be quite interesting, I think.
4: During the process, there is a section of the process called cheddaring, where we we stack the curds and they form into big slabs and that presses and changes the texture of the cheese. At some point, we had to break up those slabs in order to mix the salt into them and then put them into the forms to make the shape. The traditional method was to, to break them up in a rough way. And there was a rotor with pegs sticking out that went through a comb. There was no sharp cutting edges. It just ripped it apart. It looks rough when you do it that way. The modern way of doing it is to have a series of contra-rotating very sharp blades and another blade which cuts it very quickly underneath the and we call that a chip mill um so the modern mill is very very fast it will chop it as fast as you can put the curds into it the old mills tended to be very very slow every cheesemaker got to a certain scale of of amount of curd in a batch and then realized that the the peg mill was simply too slow just you can't go on like this uh and so everybody just goes and buys a chip mill, mm-hmm. and it, those the, the the cut faces of a chip mill. Then, when you put them into the mould, they go together with almost no fissuring at all.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Right. So
4: the clean the clean faces then bond together really yeah. really well. So if you're cutting then um, for prepack very small pieces, there's no fissuring, and so you can pre pre cut, and the bit stays as one piece. Right, and so the packing room was also driving people down that road because we pre-cut hardly any of our cheese, and it's also mostly sold over deli counters. Mm-hmm. I love having that difference. I, yeah, I love having that. Okay, it might break up under the knife a bit more, but it's got character. It's got texture, and so we redesigned the way our Pegmal fills to be able to carry on using it.
0: Oh, that's interesting, right? What in to scale? What because of the to, what to make well, it we, more efficient? Or uh,
4: yes, we yeah. we 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 I met that very very same emotion that everybody else had that it was taking forty minutes to to mill mm-hmm. our cheese. And, and that's the point at which we're putting the salt on to try and control the, the the rate of acidity in the curd. And so one end of the table was going to be completely different to the other if it takes 40 minutes.
0: Yes, yes.
4: And so only by redesigning how it works, uh, we managed to get it down, back down to 10 minutes again, which is fine.
0: You talked about this sort of sense of the being a farmhouse cheese and you're using your own milk the whole cycle and that's what it seems to me that it's very there must be a sort of satisfaction that it's you know it's your calves you know what you're you know you know where they're grazing you know what you're feeding them you know the milk you know the you know you're working the cheeses are matured on the farm aren't they and you're grading them over time so it's very sort of complete I suppose that's the picture I'm getting which must be and that must be satisfying in a way but it's interesting (laughs) yeah
4: it is it is hugely satisfying people are surprised often by the reason why it's completely satisfying it's so complex and as you're we're celebrating the fact that it is all ours it's all our control but the most satisfying thing about it fundamentally is that I don't know what it is that makes it so good <laughs> i i have huge satisfaction in the fact that I, can, I could never pin it down.
0: That's brilliant, isn't it? So oh, I love that. Well, that's the perfect moment. So thank you for your time, because I know how busy you are. Because, So, Jamie, that was a wonderful insight. Thank you for sharing the, the story of Montgomery's cheddar with us.
4: Very welcome. Thank you.
0: I'm a huge fan of Peter's Yard's crackers, and they always feature on my Christmas cheese board. All Peter's Yard's crackers are made in small batches, using quality natural ingredients and their sourdough starter slowly fermented for 16 hours for award-winning flavour and crunch. Visit petersyard.com forward slash shop. Enter the code cheese at the checkout to receive 25% off your first order.
2: Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM.
3: Enhance your cheese board with Peter's Yard Sourdough Crackers this Christmas. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon... Petersyard.com and Specialist Food Retailers.
0: Before we go on exploring the world of cheese, here's news of another Food FM programme that I think you'd really enjoy.
3: Thank you, Jenny. Well, I'm David, the host of The Drinking Hour here on Food FM. Each week, we explore the wonderful world of wine, spirits and beer. All things that make wonderful pairings with cheese, of course. We hear from those for whom making drinks is a passion. So after your cheese course, how about you join me for a few drinks? You can find The Drinking Hour with David Kermode on your usual podcast platform and at foodfmradio.com. Now it's back to Jenny and a slice of cheese.
0: This morning on A Slice of Cheese, I'm very happy to have with me today Roland Barthélemy, President of the Guilde Internationale des Fromagers. Good morning Roland.
5: Good morning everybody.
0: And with Roland as well, we have Noemi who is going to interpret for both me and for Roland. Um, so hello, Noemi.
6: Hi, hi Jenny.
0: <laughs> Roland, I was really intrigued. Um, I've read about your fascinating career. Tell me what are your early memories of cheese?
5: La première mémoire autour du fromage, c'est le dîner avec autour de la table familiale. Ou le soir, mon papa, qui avait une crèmerie dans Paris, rentrait toujours avec du fromage et nous débutions traditionnellement le repas, le dîner, par quelques assortiments de fromage.
6: So the dîner family dinner is really uh, the first the first cheese memory for Roland. Mm-hmm. Uh, his father was a, a cheese uh, had a, had a cheese shop uh, back in the times and uh, was always uh, bringing cheese. From, uh, from from the shop for uh, for the dinner, which is uh, uh, classically and traditionally placed uh, at the end of the of the of, of the dinner and just before the, the dessert.
0: Ah, yes, different from the English. Yes, you tend to do it the other yeah. way. Yeah, so very very central. How interesting! And then, Roland, you you then went on, you followed in a way your father's footsteps, and you you too had a had a very famous cheese shop. Perhaps you could tell us about that.
5: Oui, thank you Jenny. Effectivement, euh, j'ai euh, débuté euh, en tant que, que, que propriétaire euh, sans argent euh, à, à l'âge de 22 ans dans une toute petite boutique euh, qui porte toujours mon nom d'ailleurs, Barthélemy, dans le cœur de Paris à Saint-Germain-des-Prés. Okay. Ensuite, j'ai eu euh, quelques années plus tard un deuxième magasin dans une très belle ville qui, est à, qui s'appelle Fontainebleau, ville royale et ensuite un corner chez Cadeau à Berlin en Allemagne.
6: So, um Roland started uh, by the age of 22 years old. He got uh, his very small little shop uh, mm-hmm. in the center of Paris uh, and he started he started there uh, and then expanded towards uh, a city called Fontainebleau, a royal city and had uh, another uh, slightly bigger space over there.
0: I was interested because in England, we think of affinage. I think when we think of French cheese and and cheese shops, we think of the role of the affineur. And is that something that Roland, in his own career, has seen rise, the role of the affineur? Uh,
5: La la place de l'affineur a a évolué, effectivement. Il est devenu uh, central, et uh, la raison d'être de la différence entre uh, a fromager uh, détaillant affineur, la notion de vente de fromage dans les dans les distributeurs, les, les
6: Roland is saying that uh, the place of the affineur had a huge evolution and uh, started from more a role of, of selling cheese and uh, purely uh, you know acting as a as a commercial um, commercial role and and really evolved uh, in a central way of uh, getting the cheese to um, to the right conditions for for the consumers, um, so uh, yeah, a huge uh, a huge evolution and a huge growth of the importance of the role of the affineur
0: How interesting! And Roland has been. You you know you were very famous for your cheese shop. What was it that you were offering that you know that meant you had such illustrious customers?
5: The principal magasin. Uh, Paris était euh, et est un magasin où euh, nous, nous avons euh, toujours apporté euh, les fromages des, des petits producteurs d'excellence, tant euh, en France qu'en Grande-Bretagne, bien entendu, et euh, nous avons su, par la magie de frotter, de brosser, de laver les fromages, les amener à la parfaite qualité
6: so um, the first really important and, and key um, uh, activity was the selection of uh, the uh, traditional cheesemakers, artisan cheesemakers um, in France, but also uh, over uh, over the sea in the in Great Britain, uh-huh. um, and really selecting mm-hmm. selecting these cheeses, working closely with with the producers, mm. um, and then uh, again we. Talked about the uh, the work of the affineur It's uh, all around to to care the cheese, to uh, wash it, to uh, put it in the right uh, temperature and uh, humidity conditions, so mm-hmm. the cheese will get to the to the expected quality to the final consumer. So that's that's a, a key a key element. Roland wants to uh, to keep with another aspect.
5: Yes, uh, thank you, I had une une expérience uh, qui est celle de, de, de je avec uh, Paxton et et les les, les de chez Paxton, mm-hmm. je les faisais pour je les ai faisait rentrer dans mes caves euh, au, à, au, au mois de juin.
6: Now, just a little example, uh, Roland in his, his shop was uh, was working with Paxton. He was uh, asking Paxton to get him uh, the stilton and uh, he was uh, collecting the cheese in the
5: month of june for les commercialiser pour les servir à mes clients pour les fêtes de fin d'année 6 mois plus tard
6: and that was with the objective to get them ready for the consumers to shape them to prepare them uh, to mature them and get them Ready for, for the right um, ar- aromatic profile uh, at Christmas for the consumers.
0: Right. So, your knowledge of, you know, must have so much knowledge of so many cheeses if you have to. Um, that's so, so fascinating. Mm-hmm.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: J'ai écrit un livre, d'ailleurs, uh, j'ai écrit un livre qui s'appelle Cheese of the World, qui a, qui a été traduit en anglais, Cheese of the World, mm-hmm. et qui est sorti en format poche, et qui est. Uh, aimie va traduire à un hommage à mon papa 30 mm. ans de ma vie 6 ans de travail 1200 fromages 150 coups de cœur au fil des saisons
6: OK alors so when we were talking about about knowing about about cheese uh, his uh, his knowledge and uh, uh, what he received from legacy from from, from his dad mm. um, he wanted to give honor uh, the legacy of the of this knowledge. And he wrote a book, Cheese of the World, of the World oh, yes. Fromage yeah. du Monde. Yeah. Um, 1,200 cheeses.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> That's a lot.
6: <laughs> Six years of hard work to yes. write down this book. Yes.
0: Incredible.
6: Yeah. And 150 heart <laughs> um, passion, uh, you know. Uh, around the four seasons, four fil- so there's yes. 150 cheeses that uh, Roland will will recommend, according to um, ah, according I'm, to yes. how it was uh how it was attracted uh, uh, by uh, by these uh, these cheeses, and and it's important. Roland wants to remind the importance of the seasonality of the cheese. So the four seasons are are key over
0: there. That's very interesting. Yes, because I think I don't think in Britain. We have such a sense of cheese as a seasonal food. I mean, I think that's partly the, the dominance of supermarkets in, in British food shopping, um, where there are different values. You know, it's consistency and all year round. So it, it sort of takes us away from the seasons. But that's that's very interesting.
5: Well, oui, mais sauf euh, l'instant euh, festif, l'instant euh, de, de, de convivialité qui réunit toutes les familles au moment des fêtes de fin d'année. Et the uh, les, les ventes de, de Stilton à ce moment-là sont vraiment très très mm-hmm.
6: Seasonality is uh, maybe uh, more marked by um, by the winter season, where uh, where consumers know to to get their their Stilton, their, their cheeses for their boards of yes. Christmas, that,
0: for example. Yes, very true. I mean, you know, a Christmas cheese board is a very is a big in Britain, it's a big bit of our of our celebrations, which is lovely. Now, Ronald, I want to talk to you about your um, your role with the International Cheese Guild. Perhaps you could explain to us what this organization is and, and what you know what you seek to do with it.
5: La, La Guild c'est une, une association totalement indépendante uh, qui ne, depuis qui a, qui a 50 ans et qui ne touche pas de, de subsides, de de gouvernement ou d'entreprise.
6: So, the Guild is an association, it's a non-profit organization that is uh, absolutely uh, independent and was created in 1970.
5: Aujourd'hui, elle a 9000 membres dans 45 pays.
6: Today, the Guild gathers 9000 members in 45 countries.
5: Et pour euh, se développer, nous travaillons euh, exactement comme un club service Lions Club ou Rotary Club.
6: So in order to grow, um the work the guild is working exactly in the same way as uh, some other associations like the Rotary Club or uh-huh. um, yeah.
5: Quel est le but de la de la guilde?
6: What is the goal of a guild?
5: Tout simplement de rassembler l'ensemble de la filière laitière à quelque niveau qu'il soit. The,
6: the goal, the main goal is to gather all the actors of the dairy industry, wherever they are, whatever is their, is their place in this industry, is to gather them all.
5: Pour comprendre nos différences.
6: In order to understand our differences.
5: Et l'autre but de l'association est de transmettre le savoir par le compagnonnage.
6: And the second big goal is to transmit the knowledge thanks to this gathering thanks to this brotherhood.
0: That's a brotherhood. wonderful, a wonderful vision. I and mean, it sounds like that would involve a lot of traveling if you've got um, members around the world. Is that right?
6: That
5: represents a lot of travel for you with all the people around the world. Yes, of course, that represents a lot of travel. I came from Switzerland last week dimanche on Monday because we had 600 members of the Guild sont montés dans les montagnes pour le pèlerinage du saint patron des Fromagers.
6: Yes indeed. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, I got are... my impression. <laughs> <Yes>. uh, <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. And uh, and uh, we are in, in good time to to justify it. Roland is just back from uh, from Switzerland now, uh, where he was uh, uh, the weekend that just uh, passed and um, gathered six hundred members mm. for the pilgrim of um, Saint-Auguzon, who is uh, uh, one of the uh, holy figure of the Guild, and uh, the Guild was gather- were gathering there for a, a new Guild birthday, uh, so That's 600 true. members. Roland, I was interested,
0: you must have a very unique insight into the interest in cheese around the world. Are there countries that you visit that you are surprised by? You know, are, are there exciting developments that you see, the the rise of interest of cheese
5: Je ne vais pas euh, évoquer euh, des pays euh, fortement ancrés euh, traditionnellement depuis l'histoire euh, dans le fromage comme euh, la Grande-Bretagne, l'Europe. Euh, je voudrais dire euh, trois trois choses. L'artisanat euh, fromager euh, nord-américain existe seulement depuis 30 ans and nous avons avec la Guild, aujourd'hui un résultat exceptionnel puisque euh, l'Amérique du Nord compte 1450 fromages plus de 900 producteurs fermiers ou artisanaux et 30 % de fromages au lait
6: So, um, Roland is uh, uh, obviously uh, seeing lots of uh, varieties and uh, and the different uh, uh, style of cheese. We cannot, uh, in in this interview type, uh, go around <laughs> the details and the and the very niche and specific things. But one thing that maybe could be uh, brought up here is um, the uh, America, uh, the United mm. States of America is is actually a very uh, interesting um, country because uh, it is really it has really developed in the past. 20, 30 years mm-hmm. in terms of the artisan cheese variety and artisan cheese quality. Uh, we are talking, and I'm going to ask some help to Roland for the numbers, we are talking about um, 1450 cheese varieties, mm. 30% in with raw milk et 950 wow. producteurs. And uh, 950 producers um, uh, in this country. And this is, this autre, is something that is impressive. Un autre pays,
5: impressing. un autre pays extraordinaire mm-hmm. uh, que la gilde a beaucoup, de, beaucoup défendu, c'est le Japon.
6: Another uh, extraordinary country that the guild really supported uh, cheese-wise uh, is uh, Japan.
5: Fantastic. Nous sommes partis il y a 30 ans. Mm-hmm. Euh, la consommation de fromage au Japon il y a 30 ans était de 500 grammes par habitant par an.
6: The cheese consumption 30 years ago in Japan was 30 gram per capita per
5: year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Au, au, Aujourd'hui, nous avons, je vais euh, au mois de novembre, dans un mois, euh, après avoir euh, été au Brésil, du Brésil, je vais aller au Japon. Et uh, au Japon, uh, il y a maintenant uh, les Japan Cheese Awards uh-huh. que je préside and we. Mm-hmm.
6: So um, just to, to uh, go back on, on the numbers, 300 yeah. grams was the consumption. Um, <coughs> Roland, 300 grams 30 years ago was what uh, was consumed in in, in Japan. Roland uh, is in a few months going to be uh, back there uh after another uh, uh, cheese trip in uh, in brazil mm. um and uh, he's going to be back there uh, for the first uh Japan world cheese Award. Yeah.
0: fantastic that's brilliant isn't et, it I mean, that's et,
5: very exciting. Et, et savez-vous maintenant la consommation est de 2 kg par habitant et il y a, il y a 260 variétés de fromages Fermiers et artisans au Japon, plus de 300 producteurs.
6: Hmm. So, uh, and just to say why why this expansion? Why today we're talking about World cheese world in Japan? Because today in in Japan we're talking about a uh, consumption that rose to almost three kilo per capita. We're talking about 260 cheese varieties, uh, and uh, and we are uh, seeing real growth in terms of uh, varieties and quality. 300 200 200
0: producers. Fantastic. That's very exciting. The role of of cheese in France, Roland, has, has have you seen that change or do you, is it still is it central to to does it continue to be central to to France?
5: La place du fromage est uh... En, ancrée dans la, la consommation du fromage a, a évolué en France. Euh, elle, est, euh, elle était ancrée dans, traditionnellement euh, consommée au cours des repas et euh, la, la, l'évolution de, de notre société euh, engendre que le, le fromage est aussi euh, dégusté de façon euh, en picking, en snacking et euh, tout au long euh, de la journée et de la soirée. Euh, souvent, euh, juste un mot, euh, le, le fromage euh, lors des, des soirées à la maison euh, accompagne un plateau repas avec une salade, un fruit et un morceau de fromage.
6: Cheese has still a, a very central place uh, in France. Uh, is the first, is the first uh, answer. It is, uh, it is still uh, something that you wouldn't miss on a dinner, on a meal, and, and keeping uh, his full place uh in the family gathering and also on a, on a regular basis french uh, diet uh, however what did change a little bit is uh where you and how you eat the, the cheese and, and the cheese is more and more becoming as well something that you will you will take for uh, uh, an after-work uh, dinner as replacement of the full of the full meal, okay. and right. it will become just with uh, maybe a little bit of charcuterie and a, a, a glass of wine. Yeah. Your your dinner. Um. So, uh, uh, getting more space in that aspect and this that uh, way to consume it, but still very, very, very central.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. That's been absolutely fascinating. There's, I mean, we could talk all day, but I know you don't have time. But with
6: with
5: pleasure, Ginny. See you soon. See you next uh, time, maybe. Yes. I don't know when, but uh, where? Are you? But maybe, uh, I hope so, is possible.
0: Thank you, Roland. Thank you very much to both of you. That was wonderful. we much appreciated. Thank you. Thank
6: you very much, Jenny.
0: Thanks Take a share. lot. Bye-bye. Thank bye you, bye.
5: Thank you Jenny. Thank you, Noemi.
0: Bye, Roland. Bye. Bye.
2: Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again, this is Food FM.
0: This week on A Slice of Cheese, very happy to welcome back an old friend of the show, Ned Palmer, who is a cheesemonger and a cheese writer. Hello, Ned.
7: Hi, Jenny. Thanks for having me again.
0: Well, I've always enjoyed our discussions. And I thought this one was right up your street, Ned, because I wanted to look at at some cheese legends. And when I was thinking of it, I was thinking, you know, I'm sure this would have happened to you, that when you start researching the history of a food, you come across these pieces, especially if you look online, and there's a story. And it all sounds very um, picturesque and sort of lovely. But then you're like, but is there evidence for this? I mean, you, and you've written, you know, in your books about cheese. About in fact, the last time, one of the times you were on the show, we we spoke about Stilton. And it was yes. much, it was infinitely more complex, wasn't it? The oh, reality yes. than,
7: than the story. I, th- so, I think there's two things that happen and you're quite right. One thing is you start, you think, Really? Let's have a look. And often I think that sounds very pat. And then sometimes you're just deluged with information like the Stilton thing and you end up in the woods of it or, you know, wondering yeah, so what, thicket, what narrative isn't it? you can pull out. A thicket,
0: exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, would, I mean, you know, in Britain, one of the cheese, if you like, I was thinking of some of the sort of historic cheeses in Britain, Cheshire cheese, there is yeah. this story which I, you know, which is very well known, which is that, you know, it's when it was one of our great old cheeses and it's mentioned in the Doomsday Book what yeah. any thoughts on that
7: yeah first is my massive shame that for years of 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 mongering I told people that Cheshire is mentioned in the doomsday book years possibly 10 years or so i just want to say it's before I started writing books but also that my father was a historian so I do feel some shame <laughs> because when it's it came good to a story writing, it's, it's a, good a great story, Ned. Story. Just, yeah. I, I mean it is a great story I just think for so what I did was you can get the doomsday books by county and and translate it into modern English, because I can't read medieval Latin. And and then what you do is you get your wife to read it, because you're busy. Uh, very
0: sensible.
2: Yes. I
7: know, right. And she's very, very particular. Uh, and she couldn't find any mention of the cheese in the Cheshire County section. Um, and then there's a couple of other things that I thought about. When when you actually think about it hard, the first thing is the Doomsday Book is about grain and wool. It's about the bulk, the the commodities and fish ponds it's, it's and isn't fish it? and ponds. Yes. It's yeah. all it's all what William reckons he can get out of the country now that he's took it. You know, yeah. And um, a cheese just doesn't feature. It's not so important as a, as a commodity. So I, I kind of think why would they? The other thing is I don't they didn't I don't think they called cheeses names like that back in the ah, that's century. interesting very good I point I yes. don't really i can't yeah. think of i mean i think i started to see it in about the 16th of people saying the cheese from cheddar the yeah. final thing is even if they did even if they said yes on the cheshire cheese molds we'd have no way of knowing that it was anyway like what we call cheshire so I there sort of speaks like a
0: philosopher, you... yes. <coughs> I know. Right? I knew you were going to get out your philosophical streak this. Recovering conversation philosopher. <laughs> Recovering philosopher.
7: Generally.
0: Oh, yes, I need that word in. Yes, quite. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, now that's a really good point. So, yes, so in fact, yes, I mean, it is interesting because I think often, you know, the the origin stories of foods often are so lost and so not recorded, basically. Mm. But but then you have these lovely stories, you know, it's the story of coffee is that, you know, there's a goat herd in Ethiopia and he knows his goats were particularly sprightly after they (laughs) chewed on the leaves (laughs) and the beans of a tree and he tried a leaf and it kept him awake and that's that's coffee, you know, and so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so Ned, you're writing a book about French cheese? Have you have you encountered, yeah. in this sort of researching process, have you encountered some cheese, French cheese myths that you'd like to tell us about? And origin unpick? stories. <laughs> yeah, they're, yes. all like,
7: they're like just so stories, aren't they? Um, well, there's there's the one actually about the origin of blue, and I think we might have talked about it before. But what interests me about it is every country, by which I guess you I mean every European country that makes mm-hmm. a blue cheese seems to have the story. The story is that a shepherd has his bread and cheese and he sees some bandits coming over the hill so he does a runner except in italy where it's that he wants to go and visit his lover which is (laughs) of course my italian (laughs) i know right so he goes away comes back and there's his in a week i don't know there's his bread and cheese the bread's gone moldy the mold's got on the blue he tastes the cheese and thinks oh that's nice and figures out how to make blue cheese I have definitely heard French or read that that's the story of Rock Four, just yes. as I've read that's the story of Cabrales or Stilton. Yeah. So one thing I think as well, if everyone's telling it, then all but one have to be untrue, because <laughs> it can only have happened once somewhere. And the yeah. other thing, I th- th- the other thing I think about it, and this counts for a lot of I think these just those stories, is there is a grain of truth in it because the mold, as we know, the blue mold from bread. And, and and people must have at some point figured out that the mould was from bread because that is what traditional blue cheese makers use. You know, I, I was in Roquefort early this year, in roquefort sur Switzerland itself, where um, the lady I went to see making it, um, they still bake bread, let it go mouldy, and crumble that mold into the, wow. the curd. It's so yeah. cool. It's so Gosh. cool. And before anyone gets uptight, you know, uh, well, we, <clears throat> I know some people get freaked out the idea of eating mold, but you know, this is just the mold spores. Anyway, so they do do it, and and they must have. There must have been something in people noticing that in some way, yes. and trying it out. So in a sense, the origin, the real origin, got sort of covered up and mythologized by. By the a more a more sort of uh, story, uh, uh, how to put it, a more story like idea. Yes, a bit more.
0: Yeah, yeah, a bit more of a yes. That's interesting. I mean, and of course the use of caves, you know, for Cabralis that's really intrinsic, isn't it? So and that, yeah, absolutely
7: you know, and yeah, exactly. And so I mean, lots sense. of the so stories your it is caves. Yeah, ripening your yeah. and and in lots of stories it's that he hides his cheese and bread in a cave.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So so oh, I really get so, that.
7: There's another one about Camembert that I feel is... It it might wind up the French cheesemakers, particularly those of Normandy, so I apologise in advance, but I've got to say I'm a bit... (laughs) You're a brave man,
0: Ned. I know, right?
7: (laughs) Uh, Maybe the book won't be translated into French and I'll just get away (laughs) with it. Uh, So in Camembert... and So I've just... I was in Normandy a few weeks ago and I've got to say... If anyone hasn't been to Normandy, and in particular to the... the, the Gosh, that region, it's not Calvados. It, oh, I can't remember the name of the region, but there is a little village called Camembert. It's a beautiful ah. country. You can yep. really see why. It's lush country, lots of lush pasture. You can see why they're making cheese. Camembert itself is so tiny that the museum and dairy, because it's part of an actual working dairy, takes up most of the of the village, and it's a cool trip to go to. So cool. Uh, So the story is there's a woman called Madame Arel, who was a cheesemaker right in that area, and that she made a soft cheese. During the Revolution, uh, a a, a priest on the run came to stay with her, and he tried her cheese, and he'd come from the Ile-de-France, where they make brie, And he didn't think her cheese was all that. Gave her a few pointers. And that was the origin of the wonderful lush cheese camembert, (laughs) which she then started knocking out like a good one. So my first thing is, does a priest really know enough technical stuff about cheese to tell a woman who's been making cheese, I assume, all her life and learnt it from her mum and grandma all the way back? Secondly, he must have been a brave priest. What's <laughs> to to criticise for cheese? Yeah, yeah so I'm, I'm a little bit sus about that. It's yep. interesting when you go to the museum in Caen, it's a lovely museum of sort of Normandy culture and agriculture. With some, if you're into geekishness, beautiful sort of dioramas about the several different types of landscape in Normandy, just meat mm. and drink to me. They don't mention cheese at all. Oh, that they is don't interesting. It at all. They mention a little bit of dairying. Uh, They talk about butter much more. There's a couple of what I think are cheese ladles, but they don't really mention it. I don't think that dairying was that important a part of their agriculture, because Brittany next door has no cheese tradition whatsoever. They just didn't make it as far as we can tell. So I, so I, I kind of wonder if it might have come a bit later, even the right. late 18th century, and the ah. little story reached back. But one thing is, it could entirely have been inspired by one of the most successful Jesus in France or the world, which would be Brie.
3: Right. And then
7: you make it cooler if it's not that they just nabbed the idea. That's, yes. <laughs> I'm afraid, Yes, no, that's um... <laughs> um, it's my little
0: faith are sounding skeptical we'll there yep that seems to, bit. yes <laughs> I mean it's like that thing about monks and cheese knowledge because of course in Britain we have the isn't the idea in the Yorkshire Dales that it was the monks who bring over you know it was the French monks in the Cistercian Abbeys off, you know following William the Conqueror he settled in the Dales who bring there is this idea isn't it that they bring cheese making knowledge with them to the dales and then there's a the dissolution of the monasteries and the idea is it sort of gets it goes out into okay. i've sort of read versions yeah it connects through the communities do you i yeah. mean what about do you think that's plausible or implausible massively
3: or? I, 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 which so one my, sorry my, in, implausible uh, or plausible yeah
7: I don't know definitely yeah. i mean i think um no i mean to start with the monasteries are just eminently networked with each other and so you have the parent houses in france which had a long traditions of cheese making and um you know you would have Monks visiting each other's monasteries, so knowledge would spread. I always have this image of a, of the abbot of the Wensdale monastery going over to France and having some smashing cheese, getting the recipe, taking it back, and saying, "Make this for me." <laughs> um, I, I think. I, I mean, one thing I've got a kind of theory that wherever there are dairy cows, there is some sort of cheese making going on. It seems to me impossible that you didn't make some cheese. Well, because which, of the
0: amount of milk that cows
7: you produce. You'd all that milk. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, and you'd want to do things with it. Uh, and it would go, it would sour naturally. I mean, you're never not going to have the precursor of cheese. It would sour. Yeah, Even yeah. in the winter, it's going to sour quickly. So, it's, But I, I, what I imagine it is perhaps is that the monks developed a sort of proto-industrial, quite large-scale cheese making, and where they could make a lot of cheese to a consistent standard because I know that they traded it and mm. they paid, they used it to pay their rents. And, and there was British well, cheese from this island going to France to pay rents. Right. So I, I, I kind of imagine dairy people, you know, cheese makers, it was always the women working for the monasteries and going, Oh, that's me, you know, cut the curd or heat it, mm, interesting, and then learning from that and developing it. So, as always, you know, all mastery essays or any essay ends up, yeah, kind of this and kind of that.
0: Excellent. How was that? That (laughs) was great. That's really interesting. I mean, I just, when you were you know I wondered in, in all these books you're researching it. Was there, was there cheese stories that you were sort of delighted to find that there was evidence did you have a, you know, the opposite we've been unpicking but in a way was there did you have the opposite like wow that really is how that happened did, that, did you get that moment or was it not as crisp and clear and neat as that I'm not, I don't, I'm
7: not sure I mean, I mean obviously <laughs> one of my favourite cheese stories of all time and I don't know if this bears any relation to this episode or what you're asking me but it is is that one of the great Stilton makers, and it's shaming me, I can't remember, they're still going, I think it was Tuxford and Tebbit or Long Lawson. they gave Scott of the Antarctic 12 Stiltons to take with him to mm. the Antarctic. And it was within our memory, so the chap who's running it, his daughter remembered that and she was sort of alive when I was among her. So, so I love the connection. The thing was, yeah. that was his first trip and he came back from it. And the right. second time he went, he didn't take any Stilton with him, and he didn't come back. That, well, there you go. Obviously, well, I've always felt I mean, just yes. always take Stilton with you. I, uh, <laughs> what stories? I mean, I, 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 you know, for me, a really exciting thing was noticing these Roman cheese moulds in museums really all around Britain, wherever I went. And so right. many of them are really standard size and shape. And it seems so clear to me that they were making standard size and shape cheese, which just seems really cool to me. You know, it's not all just yes. sort of quite simple rustic stuff. And and that that was connected with the army. Lots of the molds found around sites associated with the army. Yeah. And then you connect this other these other sort of bits of evidence about the Roman army cheese ration, which was an ounce of cheese a day, very consistently in lots of different records and so you think okay so they're making lots of cheese for soldiers and you'd want to do that in a very standardized way yeah I I found that immensely cool I love the idea that you you have some knowledge of cheese making and you find these molds and then you find a bit of written evidence and you put the things together like that and you make a you draw a sort of tentative conclusion or say a hypothesis Mm. I love all that stuff it's like a bit like being a detective
0: yeah, no, it's like, yes, an archaeologist putting the pieces together. Yeah. So, yeah. And yeah. thinking of, so to go back to that, I used that term cheese legends at the beginning when I started talking to you, Ned. But of course, um, you know, the other thing to think about perhaps is is legend, the idea, you know, of myth and power. Is, yeah. is there folklore associated with cheese? Because it is a sort of mysterious, magical food in a way, isn't it?
7: It's so magical and I'm glad you asked me that, Jenny, because it's almost my favourite thing about cheese is up there with how tasty it is and fun. Uh, uh, I I think cheese is magic, I really do. I think it's magic because it's the same ingredients and same process for every cheese in the world. And yet, with tweaks on that basic process, you end up with 2,000 different varieties of cheese. Mm. I still find the moment when the milk shifts and turns into curd, I find so magical. And I don't know a cheese maker who doesn't feel like that about it. And then when you reach back, you think before microbiology if you don't understand the process there's an element of magical thinking. Yeah, it's a
0: wonder.
7: It. Yeah, sure. And the, of wonder, absolutely. And and then in a sort of slightly different direction, um, milk and daring has always had this kind of religious mystical connection because milk is connected with motherhood is connected with female goddesses. You never find any male gods or or deities of cheese or dairy. Ah. And they're always women. Yeah, And and then that was sort of looking through quite ancient, as old as you can get in the ideas of folklore and myth. But um, a lovely example of that to me is Bridget in Ireland, who I think became St. Bridget, who is the sort of uh, caretaking deity of dairy and dairy cows. And, and so you have the cloth, her face cloth, people hang a cloth in the... Cow um, in the barn to look after the cows, Uh, you you know, certain ways to sort of. I'm not sacrificing it to keep Bridget happy. There's a wonderful story about how she used to get ill from the milk of her father's black and white cow, and then he went to Fairyland and bought a brown cow for her, and she didn't get ill. The wow. cool thing is that people can have an allergy to the A1 protein in cow's milk, which you get in black and whites, and mm. the brown varieties, like Montbelliards, I think, and Swiss brand, don't have that A1 protein. And that, to me, is almost like we had this knowledge, we didn't know how to explain it, so we look for a way to explain it.
0: That's and
7: wonderful. Um, yeah. it, isn't it cool? And and, and it, I mean, I'm just going to interject a bit of shamefulness, I think that for until I really started doing proper good, or hopefully good, historical research, I think I suffered from this idea that old day, you know the olden days people are a bit thick and that we got cleverer. And I don't think that at all anymore. Every you know we used the mental tools we had, Quite. so yeah. so there is the other idea around folkloric stuff around cheating, making. It's so magical and strange. There's so many ways it can go wrong that mm-hmm. when it goes wrong. You look for explanations, and one of them might be that somebody cursed your dairy, yeah, or that you have done things such that you're not a right person, and 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 that's why it's going wrong. I mean, it's that idea, wasn't rem- it, in
0: mini culture? Sorry I didn't mean to interrupt, but thinking of of the house goblin, you know that you've you know that oh, you haven't yeah. put something, you haven't kept them happy, you haven't put out a bowl of milk for them, or or some some something for them to eat, exactly and therefore right. you know.
7: Yeah, it's quite that's a strong thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's a strong thing, and and I think you see it in lots. Like you said, lots of different cultures and very similar things. And I'm sure that people would, oh, did you put a bit of milk out of the pixies or whatever you call yeah. them? And maybe you didn't, and they've got now it's gone wrong, or and the milk's um, gone know, sour absolutely. and the cow's gone
0: cross, and yeah, yeah. yeah. So, There's so yeah. many
7: fairy tales that do that. The way to fix it is you had to stop making cheese because you were wrong. You know, you had to go to church, get right with God. Um, and perhaps in other cultures, do whatever rituals you needed. Uh, and you had to wait for a while. Then you had to ritually cleanse your dairy. Gosh. And then when you started making cheese again, in the sort of Northern European cultures, you put a branch of Rowan in the
4: the yeah. B- Rowan wards it, yes. off the
7: evil eye. But it yeah. works. These are all ways. So um, my theory about this is that if your dairy has suddenly got uh, an infestation of farge, which is a virus that eats your starter culture, then your milk's not going to turn. If you stop making for a few weeks, you deny it a food source. If you clean the dairy, you're cleaning out the remnants of that farge that's living there. When you bring a branch of a tree in, you're bringing new bacterial cultures that the farge is not evolved to consume. Ah. You're introducing new culture. So in the modern in people use a different starter culture if they get fired. And they do all the other things. Maybe they don't go to church, but they stop, they clean. Yes. So they figured out what to do in a really empirical way. They just I had a different that. language for it. Isn't it cool?
0: Yes, that is brilliant. That's a lovely, that's really interesting. Yes. So they all made total sense just in a different, yeah. seen through a different sort of prism in a way, different lens. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. So, so in your sort of research, do you, are there superstitions of things that, you, you know, would you yeah. not, I don't know, are there times of, of the year or, the, or that you wouldn't make cheese, you know, are
7: there? Well, if you think about, there's a lot, and I don't want to go up because I could take up more than the whole show, are yeah. uh, you obviously, so in the really old days, before the 18th century when we really figured out how to feed livestock through the winter you if you got any milk at all in the winter it really wasn't very good and in fact I think a lot of the times it's all going to be a bit grim Jenny that you slaughter the beasts that you don't think are going to make it through yeah and the other ones by the spring they're skinny as they've been on a bit of hay and whatever they can eat and so you're not really making cheese in the in the winter time when you look at the cheese rolling that very pagan scented uh, bit of, of, of folkloric behaviour Then I mean, when they rolled the cheese down in yes. isn't it and run after it. And they also in a in a nearby village what they do instead of something so lunatic, because they dress a cheese, you know, in flowers and things oh, and then okay. they walk it around the church. I think the first cheese of the year was a great celebration because the hungry gap is over. You're going to start making cheese again and feed yourselves. And you feel very grateful for that. So you make sure that you, you do something to, to, to express your gratitude yes. to whoever or whatever yep. you think. So I think cheese rolling is a survival of that. In Wales, they used to oh lord I hope they still do this The women at a birth the women would make a cheese, special cheese but they would make it secretly and at some point in their sort of I think the christening bit they would nip off and eat a bunch of cheese and have some beer and tell filthy stories about their men folk and then all go home with a little piece of cheese in their pockets and this was something that was supposed to make the child be sort of strong and, Brilliant. and fit and good and it's very much <laughs> kept away from the men, yes. I hope they still do it and they're just not talking about it
0: yeah private it's like I like um the idea of the potency of of cheese as sort of a spring yes you know a spring food with the coming of spring and the coming yeah. of dairy you know pasture again that you' would see your dairy can have milk and you can create a cheese that that is definitely worth right. celebrating isn't it so. it
7: is and it's funny because you know one doesn't want to get too romantic about this so you know with every we know we've lost a lot of That sort of seasonal eating and change in the seasons that we used to have, and obviously we don't regret almost starving to death over winter. (laughs) So you know, it's 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 in many ways it's fantastic that we can always get food all year round. But a little way to be conscious of that and celebrate it is that there are far more goat cheeses and sheep's cheeses, fresh cheeses, available in the spring and summer because. And I haven't got quite to the bottom of this. It's a lot easier to get cows to give you milk all year round than it is goats or sheep. I know it's possible, but you do see a flush of of goats. You do. I, am I, on am the counter? I, yes.
0: And also, what's lovely is that they go really beautifully with with fruit. You know, that's what the really interesting is. You have this lovely yeah. Gets, so eating every year, I make sure I eat like a perroche Cheese with oh, cherries, exactly. you know,
7: because it's a lovely. beautiful
0: pairing, isn't it? And it's a seasonal, yeah, no, totally. and it's that seasonal pairing, which is very lovely. It, so, it yeah. is,
7: and I love that you've made Should would be my cheese. It perfectly illustrates that freshness. And it's funny, isn't it, that they do go with um, with the fruits and the fresh fruits. And, um, and that makes you think that we've been doing this for a very long time, that, you know, yes. 9,000 years, and we've sort of figured that out.
0: There are these patterns. Oh, it. Well, Ned, that's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for mm. bringing all your you know, your thoughtfulness to that. That was a lovely discussion. So um, Thanks, Jenny. take care. Thank you, Ned. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Jenny. Bye.
2: To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.
3: Enhance your cheese board with Peter's Yard sourdough crackers this Christmas. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers.
0: Thank you so much for listening to A Slice of Cheese. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, it would be lovely if you could rate us on wherever you've found this podcast. It will make such a difference to us. So I hope you'll enjoy us again. Thank you very much.